This is a very special episode. We are recording live, and we have a special guest. Matt Offlick. From the Offlick. Office of Emergency Management in Seattle. So this proves that we're totally legitimate and that we have real facts that we say sometimes, every once in a while. Yes. Facts. But also, Matt will have more facts. How do you spell facts? Um, that's F-A-X. That's facts. <laughs> <T-E-S>. <laughs> you're, you're assuming that I'm legitimate, but... I, yeah. We are actually assuming that. <laughs> you are. We don't know a lot yeah. about Matt. I met him at a um, basic first aid class, and yeah. I thought it was really cool saying, well, you know, I've got a podcast about prepping, and he's like, wait... I think I talked to somebody else about a podcast about prepping. I was like, well, there's a lot about there, um, yeah. out there. And there can't like, be two. He's like, no, I'm pretty sure this is the same one. I was like, Danny? <laughs> Lo and behold, they had already met. So I think maybe after we had recorded our second uh, episode, we had a chamber meeting at the place where I work. And, yeah, let's uh, give it up for the Fremont Foundry for a second. If you don't know where that is, it's in the middle of the city. Um, I'll send you a map if you PM me. Uh, So I, uh, we had just finished kind of, we kind of had, we knew that we were doing it. We had some traction, but we hadn't really defined what we were completely doing yet. So for me to go to someone from the city and be like, so I have a podcast was kind of presumptuous at the time. (laughs) It wasn't a lie. We did have. We did have an episode or two episodes Mm -hmm. of the podcast. Yep. But luckily, uh, Matt didn't just like walk by, like shove me to the side while he answered like more legit questions from chamber members. Um, so yeah, thank you, Matt, for coming today. Yeah, I do. Should we let him talk for a second? Yeah. <laughs> How did you end up working? Just for... talk. <laughs> yeah. Just, Just whatever's on your mind. How did you end up working for the Office of Emergency Management? Uh, I mean, I've kind of been working in this area for a while. So I worked for the Red Cross in Pennsylvania previously, um, and then I moved out to Seattle in 2013 to walk work for a small nonprofit that actually does preparedness and relief work in Asia. Uh, and I was overseeing a project in Vietnam around business preparedness. And then I started working for the city about two years ago. So. Nice. We're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that is like so, so I, yeah, I guess, I guess I'm semi-legitimate. <laughs> um, I do have to inform the crowd that uh, just through a little online uh, stalking, that someone sitting up here is a Steelers fan, so I apologize. Wait, it's not me. <laughs> I apologize. An actual football fan. An actual. It's getting real. No, we ever even survive this. So just to kick things off and to certainly make you more comfortable, we have a pop quiz. Awesome. <laughs> he has not been supplied with these questions. No. Um, so, first question. <laughs> In what year did the Great Ravenna sinkhole happen? Uh, 
I've seen the pictures. Um, I want to say that it was in the 50s. Um, 52, 55, 57. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't seen it, you should look up the pictures. It's pretty impressive. So the whole collapse in the night of November 11th, 1957 in Seattle's Ravenna neighborhood at Ravenna Boulevard between 16th and 17th Avenues Northeast caused by the failure of the six-foot diameter sewer pipe break. At the time, it was the biggest of its kind in this country. Uh, the hole measured 60 feet deep, 120 feet wide, and 200 feet long. Miraculously, no one was injured, and not a single home was damaged. But many people were evacuated from their homes, and also the sewer in the entire Ravenna area was affected for a while. Ew. <laughs> Again. Ew. F. That's kind of an obscure one. Are they all going to be that obscure? <laughs> you did amazing. Yeah. You already knew. You know, I, I, if I Google um, Seattle historic disaster, and actually I feel we like... looked that up because last year there was a sinkhole in oh, yeah. about the same area, because and that was our concern. But it was much smaller. It was very small. Was Weren't there like some around the around. Bertha drilling too? Yeah, yeah, some some Does that minor concern ones. You? Yeah. <laughs> At the time, yes, it did. <laughs> Can I ask the next one? Yes. All right. What magnitude was the 1949 earthquake that killed eight people and caused over 1,900 buildings to be condemned in the Seattle area? They were all six something, six, seven. Pretty close. This is how tall I am. This is the, the well, at its epicenter, it measured 6.1. Wow. wow. <laughs> the ground shook for about 30 seconds and was felt over a 230,000 square mile area. The earthquake affected all of Washington State, Northwest Oregon, Southwest British Columbia, North Idaho, Panhandle, and even Northwest Montana. I don't think their instruments were that good in 1949, and I say it was a 6.7. <laughs> <laughs> It's 1949. Sounds good. Sounds good. <laughs> the truth comes out. Um, so, our last part of the pop quiz, Seattle's biggest disaster. To what city did the Seattle Sonics move in 2008? <laughs> did they become uh, New Orleans? <gasps> there? I, I don't know. I don't pay attention. <laughs> I, I don't like basketball, and obviously nor does Seattle, where they, they would still have a basketball team. Hot up that was a zinger. That was a major zinger. It was to Oklahoma City. Oh, thunder. But they're yeah. coming home soon, darling. Sure, sure. <laughs> Oi. All right. Well, we do actually want you to say like some things that will help us learn, because that's what we're all about here, helping each other prep. And so yeah. we really did ask you here to like not give you a pop quiz, but talk yeah, about that was good though. the city. Thanks. I mean, I didn't do any of it, but, um, <laughs> you know, Seattle's plan for preparedness. So to like start from the basics. Yeah. So in terms of kind of how the city plans and responds, uh, and I'll start very broad. So please, as you want to know more detail of a certain area, let me know. Okay. So my department, Office of Emergency Management, we're relatively small. There's 14 of us. Um, we're technically within the police department, but our role is really coordinating citywide planning, response, recovery, mitigation. So all of those things take a lot of individual departments. We have a lot of plans. 
the major things kind of sit under a framework of our comprehensive emergency management plan. Um, so there's several parts to that. One of the first initial pieces is our hazard identification and vulnerability analysis. The Seattle hazard identification and vulnerability analysis, which we call the Shiva for short, which the is Shiva. yes, which is an awesome name. So if you can, <laughs> if you can appreciate the um, the, <laughs> the connection to um, both Hindu mythology and uh, the league, and the league. <laughs> so that kind of sets like the baseline of these are all the things that could happen, and these are the impacts from those, um, and everything else kind of comes from that. Um, so we have our response plan which really our plans are more outlining how we will respond as a city and what individual departments are responsible for. So we kind of break things into functional areas and then depending on what that functional area is, who is the department that's responsible for that? And then those departments have a lot of specific plans to deal with those issues because most of the time they're things that they're dealing with every day anyway. We're just looking at them having to deal with a lot more of them. And what are the, what would you say are the top two hazards uh, as far as the, for, that you plan for in Seattle? Yeah, I mean, earthquakes is undoubtedly number one. So if you looked at the Shiva, which you may not look at it, it's about 270 pages long. <laughs> oh, that's the one. And I have referred but, to, but, and has completely changed all of my yakety yak to making fun of the Office of Emergency but, Management. But, but somewhere in there, starting to read this document. Somewhere in there, there is a ranking. So we essentially identify, I think it's 18 different things, and we rank those based on kind of a maximum credible scenario and the most likely scenario and what would the impacts of that be. And, and earthquakes always end up at number one. Um, we get them semi-frequently, uh, but more so it's the impacts and what we call cascading impacts. So you have the shaking, you have buildings damaged from the shaking, for example, but it's those cascading impacts like now the power's out, um, transportation's disrupted, communication's disrupted, that really bumps it up. Um, and then things like winter storm are up there because they're so likely and so frequent, but they can have similar impacts in terms of transportation being disrupted, um, electricity being disrupted, things like that. That's really cool. I don't think that the winter storm has even kind of entered our bubble of preparedness yet. Yeah, and if you look, you know, historically, there's been been some big things there, and who knows what the future holds with um, climate change. So, and then within the earthquakes, climate we do, change? you'll see. <laughs> I said it. You'll see the the Seattle what? fault is what we consider like the worst case scenario. So that's a fault that basically runs from Bainbridge Island through Puget Sound under downtown, and that's what we call a shallow fault. So the earthquake would happen very close to the surface. So that's like worst case scenario for us. And what magnitude earthquake would it take for it to have a direct effect, like for that for that shallow kind of area? I mean, honestly, a Seattle fault, just about anything. I mean, the strongest they think it could be is about a 7.2. So there's one that happened in about 900 AD that they estimate was about a 7.2. So that's like worst case scenario. But even something like a 6 um, could be devastating. So when you look at magnitudes, it gets kind of confusing because like Nisqually was a 6.8 in 2001. Not a lot of damage. But that's happening like 30 kilometers or more below the surface is where that's actually emanating from. So if it's a Seattle fault and it's more like five kilometers below the surface, the shaking is just that much more violent. So, and that fault runs directly under like downtown. So, 
<laughs> but those have happened much less frequently. So. Yeah. And, and what buildings downtown? <laughs> Um, yeah, everyone wants so, to see the line and be like, oh, yeah. I'm not on the line, so I'm good. So you act like that doesn't <laughs> really matter. Yeah. <laughs> so I think a lot of people come to us and they go, I can't even prep. I don't even want to think about it. It's too stressful. You talk about this and have to do it every day. How do you deal with knowing you're going downtown to work? And hey, today could be the day. And you know yeah. so much about it. Do you feel really secure about that? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, honestly, even when I talk about preparedness, I think like so much of it is your mindset anyway. We, we come across a lot of people who are clearly like very stressed out about it, <laughs> about what could happen and everything that could happen. So um, release that tension that you just built up in your back. Yeah. yeah. Let it go. Let the shoulders and, down. And a lot of times I think that that can just be counterproductive for them because then everything seems completely overwhelming. Um, it's a difficult argument to make to everyone because you're often talking about this thing that could happen. I mean, we always say it's not, you know, it's not if but when, like it is going to happen, but it's still to people is kind of this far off thing. Um, so it's difficult to convince people to actually put time into it. I mean, you try to put it into kind of simple steps you can take and link it back to things that could be useful, even not in the giant earthquake, but in those smaller events, like a winter storm that, you know, causes a power outage. Uh -huh. um, but it's not, it's not an easy argument to make to people. So. Um, so you, so the first step, Shiva, that's kind of the first area that the, that the city is looking at. What is now the second? Because there's four of them. So the Shiva, I mean, the other thing under there is the emergency response plan, essentially. Um, and a lot of what that outlines, I think the misconception sometimes is when people think plan, they think of very specifics like, um, this is where my house is and I take this bridge. What's the plan when that bridge is gone? It's like, well, the, the plan doesn't like address your specific house or the things that you rely <laughs> what? on. But it's I much more general in that, in that we have assumptions in there and we have an earthquake annex, which has a lot of those. So these are the things we know are probably going to be true. Bridges, roads down, and who is responsible for those? Seattle Department of Transportation. And then they have individual plans um, like bridge inspection teams. So this is a good example where they have bridge inspection teams who are assigned to bridges. They have caches of equipment at five different places in the city that they know they can get to based on where they live and they're not separated by water or having to take a bridge. And they know that they go to those bridges. Some bridges are priorities like parts of I-5 that are downtown and go over streets like Cherry, James, that basically would cut off access to hospitals if they were you know, impeding um, traffic there. Um, so that, that's a good specific example of in our operations plan, these are things we know will happen. SDOT is in charge of getting those things back up and running, and then they have specific plans with how exactly they're going to deploy people to start prioritizing what things they get back up. That actually just made me feel a lot better. That like people, like, <laughs> there are people who are like, from my house, I am responding to this location, and there is a stash of what yeah. not there for me to deal with. Where are those stashes? <laughs> <laughs> show, show me your bridge inspecting credentials and I can, I can find out. Right here. Um, yeah, it looks like that card right yeah. there. Yeah, so. right. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a bridge inspector. And then the other, the other important plan I would say is one of the real important things is our mitigation plan. Um, so that's essentially those same assumptions we have that, you know, water service will be disrupted, that bridges will be disrupted. 
our mitigation plan is what are the things we're doing in the day-to-day now to really harden that infrastructure so that we mitigate the impacts. Um, so I think that thing is really informative to people to see what it is we have outlined over usually a five-year period. The current plan goes to 2021. And what have we been doing with that? So like SDOT, again, has a list of bridges, a schedule for when they're getting seismically retrofitted. Um, like most cities, we're in the situation where when most of our things were built, we didn't understand the seismic risk. Um, and so there's a lot of cost to suddenly suddenly redoing all of your infrastructure. You can't really do that. So most people are doing these things kind of on a schedule over time that is in our mitigation plan. Hopefully we get done with it in time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I feel like all dope. of the state taxes should go towards this. Uh, but I do want that does lead me to uh, kind of one of the specific questions we had for you, which is where does Seattle fall nationally in kind of like a preparedness? Because I'm sure even with a small office, you're dealing with a lot of other city kind of management. Yeah, you know, we deal with a lot of other cities. There's no kind of quantitative like ranking of those. Um, some things that I can say are, you know, I was looking today at, there are some like national rankings of infrastructure by state which nationwide are pretty poor. I think like the nation, the you know, Association of Civil Engineers gives the nation like a D plus. Um, but Seattle, like but Seattle has like a C, so we're well above average. Other things, there was actually, there was an article in the Seattle Times yesterday um, about sustainability and an index that the UN put out ranking major American cities um, on the sustainability index, which includes things like infrastructure, um, economy, different factors that really do play into preparedness or when we talk more about like resilience. I mean, sustainability is closely linked to that. And Seattle was ranked number three um, among 50 cities. So so that's very good. Yeah. That's really uh, amazing. Good, good job, Matt. Really proud. It's probably because Matt, did, you, yeah, turn, did you turn in the report yeah, that the UN like, looked at? Man. It was like you personally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then the other thing I would mention is there is, from an emergency management standpoint, which is really you know the field that is kind of putting all these things in place and laying the roadmap for how we prepare, how we plan, there's an accreditation program um, that I don't have the number right now of how many jurisdictions have done it, but is very few if you look at nationwide. Um, and last year we did get accredited, and that's a that's a voluntary process that you essentially put yourself through um, as an agency to have independent evaluators come in and kind of judge all the plans you have in place, the processes you have in place, uh, and then give you an accreditation based on meeting some standards that have been developed by emergency managers across the world, really. So so that was a big thing for us. So that's, really so that's cool. a good thing. Good job. Yeah. 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 Way to go. Let's see if we have a map. Yeah. 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 The 13 other himself. people do absolutely nothing. Um, so you have that. So as a um, just private citizen, a disaster happens of some kind that's, that affects the whole city. Uh, what is my response as far as what I'm supposed to do and what you are hoping? I'm not saying that this is what is people's natural kind of 
their natural desire is to run to someone who is going to hold their hand through it. But we That's realize that you're people, handling yeah. millions of people. Um, what is kind of the city structure around that? Yeah, I mean, our hope is, and, and everything that we teach out in the community is done with the goal that people essentially can be self-sufficient. Um, you know, we typically have been saying seven to 10 days. More likely, we would like people to be able to go for a couple weeks um, to just be self-sufficient. I mean, those things that we talked about, you know, transportation's disrupted, stores aren't open, communication's disrupted. Given those things, would you be able to just stay where you are which is the most likely scenario for us if we're looking at an earthquake is that you're going to have to stay where you are, shelter in place. We want people to be able to do that. Um, that being said, if you look at our plans and the long list of assumptions that we have, like in our earthquake annex, one of them is that the vast majority of the public will not actually <laughs> be prepared to do that because that's just what we know what? from actually talking to people. Um, um, so we try to fix that. I'd like to take that assumption out. but. Yeah. How many people in this room feel like they could survive for two weeks in your own house? We'll say there's there's 700 people in this room. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would like to see more I hands. Mean, and keep in mind, she said would, survive, not thrive. Yeah. So like, yeah. you just have to not survive. die yeah, and stay in one your one house. Like, I would say 50% of this room says for two weeks they can survive in their house. Two weeks? How many of you will be eating condiments for a week of that? Okay, half of that half. Dog would <laughs> be having condiments. So Could you also have your pet survive for two weeks? Oh. That's why you have... No, we know what she wants to eat. We know. We know. How many babies are there in the neighborhood? Um, Yeah, I guess that's the question that I have for you, Matt. Like, disaster situation... You have um, no prior relation to either. You don't have to participate in the preparation. Would you eat a dog or a baby asking for a friend? (laughs) Do I have to say which one or do I say yeah yes? Because you said you said or, so I'll say yes. Uh, I I said I spent a lot of time in Vietnam. Do they eat babies there? <laughs> Great answer, Matt. I appreciate it. I appreciate the support in yes, my meal yes. planning. Um, so, yeah, those snacks out there. Yeeks. <laughs> Who knows what those meats are? I do. Um, Only one. Who knows? So, you want people to be able to take care of them for themselves for two weeks at a time. But as we're seeing, um, very sadly in our country right now, we there are several huge disasters that have happened, not only to individual towns, but huge metropolitan areas. And I think looking at what's going on there, a lot of us can, um, like we see a lot of heroes every day coming out to do what they can. Yeah. Um, and I, just from our prior experience, uh, I'm hoping that you can tell everybody a little bit about SNAP yeah. and how they can get involved in their neighborhoods and what that program is. Yeah, so, I mean, like I said, the the bare minimum, we're hoping people can take care of themselves, but we know that ultimately, because of that, you're on your own, you very may well rely on people around you, and we'd like you to, um, people working together. So, SNAP, Seattle Neighborhoods Actively Prepare, is really about giving people some tools and guidance on how they might work with neighbors, people that live on their block, people that live in their building before something happens. 
Um, so we go over a lot of kind of priority areas. So especially after an earthquake, things we know will have to be done are things like putting out small fires that might happen, um, knowing how and when to control your utilities, so like turning off your gas, turning off your water, uh, and then basically helping people around you. So that can be some basic first aid and doing some basic search and rescue. So those are what we kind of list as these are things that you will likely have to do. Um, and SNAP really is outlining the fact that those need to be done, but then here are some tools for how you might organize a group of people uh, and practice some of those things, get kind of knowledge and skills that would help you do those things so that you can all do that together when something happens. Um, so then we encourage people, once we give them those kind of tools for organizing, to then come to some of the classes like you came to, because we give classes that cover all of those priority area things. So now you're a group of people. You know each other, you have more knowledge about kind of the skills and abilities of people that are living near you, and now you've all gone and gotten some more training on some of these things you might have to do, and, and that is SNAP. Are you your neighborhood, are you your SNAP captain? No. Your neighborhood? <laughs> you, should meet, you should meet my neighbors. Um, <laughs> And I, and, I, and I will say, I'll be very, I'll be very... He must live in Capitol Hill. Yeah, I'll be, yeah, I, I wish. Uh, um, I'll be very honest about this, is that we, we encourage people to do that because we know it's beneficial. But at the, very, at the most basic level, you're responsible for yourself. And we know that not everyone is going to do that. There's been some interesting studies in Seattle that it's not the most neighborly of places when compared to other cities. The Seattle freeze yeah, is it's, an actual it's, thing? It's, it's an actual thing. Mm -hmm. It's not on the list of hazards, but like <laughs> winter be. storms and, and freeze. Yeah. Um, That's the winter storm. <laughs> so so I, think, I, I think the only time we, you know, we get pushed back on that sometimes because people have trouble actually organizing their neighbors and things like that or they can't get every single neighbor to do it so they see it as a failure but it's kind of it's a it's a good practice and if you can do it do it but at the bare minimum again it's you it's the people in your house your family your roommates things like that and that's your first concern and if you can expand that circle that's awesome but it's not you know mm -hmm. not required I do love when we went to the um, the the earthquake scenario mm -hmm. uh, in our neighborhood. Uh, one of the things that I hadn't really considered before, which was really cool to see the volunteers playing out, was when you arrived at the location, there were two separate boards. There was a board for what do you need, and there was a board for what do you have. So instead of just going there for help, you might also go there to say like, hey, I have extra tarps. I have a chainsaw. I have extra dog food. It, whatever the supplies are that you have in your household, um, going there. So when you're, you know, involved in these snaps, or when you, if you tonight, in the very least, can go home and figure out where where's your, your hub, where's your hub at? Like, where are you supposed to go? Um, I think it's good to remember that once your family is safe, know that you have skills and also supplies. It could be very beneficial to someone else that you may or may not need within your own household. And uh, people are going to need those in these situations. So, yeah, and the snap. So, do it. It's, <laughs> so, like, snap, snap is mostly about kind of that response stuff. So, those immediate things that need to be done. Um, and then hubs are kind of covering maybe a larger area, and that's maybe where you go after that, which is that place, like you said, to start sharing information, sharing resources. So, you know, the fire's out, the gas is off, the basics are there, but you 
you know, streets are still disrupted, you don't know what's going on, maybe you don't have certain things, then yeah, the hub is a place for everyone to come together, start figuring that stuff out together. So do you help run those scenarios, the simulations? No, the hubs are actually, I mean, the hubs are very grassroots. So it started as, as really a grassroots thing um, and we support it and we promote it. Um, so like recently we work with Department of Neighborhoods to get all of the community gardens just identified as hubs um, because I think people get hung up a lot on what the hub is and we just define it as first and foremost just a place like a place and just socialize the fact that that is your place and everyone knows to go there um, and then build from there if you can do things beforehand that's great um, if not it's still that place that people can come and start doing that simple kind of sharing so, so all of that simulation that we went to what was it july Yep, or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You weren't part of that at all. That's all grassroots. Yep, that's all just wow. people that's amazing. volunteering their time with their hub. So And their cool radios. And their yeah. cool radios. Also, how many ham radio operators do you know? And are you one? Are you one? <laughs> I am I am not one. But get out um, of here. <laughs> there's, uh, there, so we partner with ACS, which is Auxiliary Communication Services, and they they're they have about hundred and fifty Volunteers that are ham operators. 152, maybe one day. And so, <laughs> and so they they're always staffed in our EOC space. when we activate. <laughs> so we always have amateur radio folks in the EOC when we activate. So oh, nice. Yeah. Um, would you like to come over when I call space when I become an <laughs> yes. ham? Okay. Yes. <laughs> Matt is in. Don't even understand how you're going to call space. That's one of the things that ham That's radio why operators I'm going do. Over there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still waiting for the space ham, elevator. Ham, you this I concept? am. Yeah. I will also ride the space need to call elevator. Just go. They made that fiber that'll yeah. go up. There. <laughs> what's, um, that, what's that elevator music like? <laughs> you tell us, Lex. So. You're the sound effects lady. No. <laughs> um, so we have a couple. Of, well, first, before we move on, are there other parts of the kind of Seattle? preparation system that would be good for us just to know that are happening that would make us feel either more comfortable or that we should get on that train and help out? No, I mean, I think I think looking at the mitigation plan is probably one of the most tangible things of, of seeing kind of these are gaps that are identified. This is what we're doing over the next five years to address those. So like I said, those things like um, the bridges are just so tangible when you look what's around you and you can say these are the five bridges that they're retrofitting over the next six years or whatever. Um, other things, the, the Shiva is, like I said, unfortunately it's 270 pages long, but so we good. created the, so um, good. Have, you guys, <laughs> no, no, have you guys Great looked reading. at the Hazard Explorer, the, the map on yeah. the website? Oh, I have. <laughs> oh, I so have. we built the Hazard Explorer <laughs> after really the New Yorker article when we, we brought some like paper maps out to classes we did. People all want to see like where their house mm -hmm. is in relation to some of these things like landslide risk and stuff oh, like yeah, that. Yeah, but the the paper maps and the 270 page Shiva aren't the best way to, to get that across. So we built the Hazard Explorer, which is just a series of interactive maps. You can search an address. You can see kind of where are the flood prone areas, what areas are prone to liquefaction, what areas would likely see more shaking during an earthquake, things like that. So, so that's something that I would recommend checking out because it's just easy to use and hopefully motivates. And when um, this evening when Matt arrived, he did point out that we had 
a couple of episodes where we may have made fun of um, the website and also the Office of Emergency Management. This is the awkward may part have. of the, well, the The best part was that they were making fun of the fact that we were trying to make preparedness entertaining. <laughs> I also While they were in like episode six of trying to make preparedness entertaining. So I was like... Like, what are they trying to make it like funny and actually people like want to like pick the stuff up? Like, like, I did also point that out. I did point it out that we were contradicting ourselves. Um, But um, (laughs) I did change my tune quite a bit once when I started reading that document and actually trying to, you know, it. It's not something that's easy to read when it's not something you read every day, but it, every time I go back to it, I feel like there's there I feel better about where I am as far as what the city is doing and kind of the assessment of what's going on. Uh, but also when I started exploring the site more and not just on the surface, <laughs> like things like the hazard maps uh, did, I felt like were a really nice touch because I feel like in this city where technology is so abundant and uh, we are constantly on our phones, which is why we don't talk to anyone, um, obviously. Um, they, yeah, it's on Facebook. I mean, <laughs> you can like look at it. Uh, I do think that those hazard maps became like something that I was like, wow, like it's nice to be able to assess yeah. all of the different kind of dangers that are there. So we have a few questions. Do you want to ask these from the audience is before we get into some audience questions? <laughs> I don't even know what they say. <laughs> All right, ready? Ready. An earthquake in Seattle will most likely disrupt the railroads, which include shipping our solid waste to Oregon. Define solid waste. Okay. <laughs> Someone said this. I feel like yeah. we're not shipping that there. Probably like garbage? And or garbage. All right. <laughs> what measures have you taken with temporarily moving our trash to a different location? I should have just read the whole damn question. <laughs> Trash, not. <laughs> um, I throw um, mine away. <laughs> uh, uh, maybe I'll address both of those. <laughs> both slightly. That, that guy is the coolest phone case I've ever seen. Hot dog, hot dog phone case in the audience. Um, so, in terms of like garbage. <laughs> I will say that that we know we know that that will be an issue. Um, so SPU would be the department that's in charge of that. Um, there are and and I can't speak to this in detail, but I can tell you that one of the things they plan for are debris management sites. So sites on city property where we would have to take trash and debris to start storing it, where we don't normally do that. Um, that's always a huge issue in any disaster, and you always see that? I mean, usually it's temporarily keeping it somewhere until there's some other solution. I recommend Belltown. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, I think, I, think, I think one of the major sites is like, like Magnuson Park, which is you know a very, very large yeah. area. So that's one of those places that can be like a debris management place. Um, I'm just seeing so these yeah, pictures from Houston. And yeah, I mean, it's basically it's it's a lot of cleaning up crazy. and storing where you can until, until you have ways to get it elsewhere. Um, and like like the question noted, I mean, transportation will be disrupted. Um, so things like that will be a priority because the other things we talk about in some of our skills classes are the the other type of waste that was just referenced. So um, 
things like that will undoubtedly be a priority in the city's response just because of the public health ramifications of not having sewage service. Um, so when we do our skills class, we, we teach people about some things they can do to implement the, the bucket method and things to have on hand, uh, because likely that's going to be in the short term what needs to be done. Um, but again, that'll be a priority because there's so many ramifications from that. If you look at other disasters like uh, Christchurch, which is very similar to what we could see in terms of an earthquake, you know, you get chemical toilets in, you get porta potties in, things like that. We would be doing that. That stuff just takes time because we'll have a lot of resources coming from throughout the country, but that takes time. So short term, it is getting by with buckets and what you can, and then they start setting things like that. Up. So glad we don't have time for demonstration. SBU has a great flyer on the bucket method. That's Seattle Public Utilities. Okay, great. I'll. Be sure to pick up that flyer for some bathroom reading. Let's <laughs> um, ask the next one. Do you want um, to? Oh, do you want to do this one? or do, I'll ask one of these. Okay. Uh, on episode 13 of uh, Prep Yourself, we falsely spread the rumor that you wear a monocle. Do you have feelings on this? Also, do you have a monocle? <laughs> I, I can't believe I didn't listen to this episode. <laughs> So is this the most recent one? The uh, about foraging. Yeah, yes. foraging. I'm trying to figure out how foraging and me with a monocle. Oh, episodes <laughs> are wide ranging. I also, do not have a monocle, but I feel I may need to get one now. So. Also, they uh, may falsely think I that can you're see, like, the top hat title the is Sir Matt. Sir Matt. Sir Matt. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you want to ask? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Number two of two questions from the audience. <laughs> what measures or procedures are in place within the public school system to prep our children? What can we as parents do to support and contribute to those efforts? That's a good question. That is a good question. Um, a couple of things. So, I mean, public schools, each school has requirements for doing a certain number of drills. I think that includes two earthquake drills every year, so practicing drop, cover, hold. A lot of them do that during the Great Shakeout, which is usually in October, so statewide effort to have people practice drop, cover, hold. Other things, we actually assist um, Seattle Public Schools in some of the training they deliver. So teachers get this critical incident management training, which has to do with what plans they have to have in place at their school. So a lot of schools will have some kind of safety committee made up of teachers that are responsible for keeping those plans up to date. A big part of that is reunification. So something happens, how do you make sure that students are getting back with parents? So we help them deliver that. They have some standard processes for that. So if at the beginning of the year, you should have to fill out a form about who can pick the child up, you know, designating a few people that can do that. So they have processes that we go over in terms of big disaster happens, parents are all coming to get their kids, how you check them in, verify who it is picking up the child, get the child to them, um, things like that. In terms of what you could do as a parent, um, I can say that from my experience working with some of the schools that unfortunately they have some requirements in the plan or recommendations in terms of like supplies and things they should have on hand. But usually those are left up to the school and, and the funding they have. So a lot of times they have to find ways to independently raise the money or 
have kids all bring some things in to kind of get that stuff together. So I would say as a parent, that's something that a number of parents could focus on and probably find some good creative ways to help the school kind of get all those things that Mm -hmm. they should have. Because when King 5 did their um, emergency prep um, special, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure you helped out with that, I was surprised Um, we didn't see you on there. Yeah, I think they interviewed our director, Barb, and I think I probably talked to them. Glenn Farley it was. Cool. Uh, they had the example of co-elementary in Queen Anne, a very affluent school, and holding this up as a model, but I'm guessing that not every school in Seattle is going to be that prepared. Yeah, probably not. I coach middle school soccer, and I coach at a school that you can tell you should see their uniforms compared to some of the other (laughs) teams we play. You can guess where the school is just by looking at their uniforms. And it's the same thing. I mean, it's, it's mainly funded through what you can come up with from parents and basically the population that the school is serving. So I like the level of surprise that Lex and I had when you <laughs> said that you coach middle school soccer. We're like, what? Yeah, I don't, I don't know do why. I can do anything. I can do anything. Are the jerseys of your team black and yellow? They're actually purple. It's Ew. kind of, you know, <laughs> they're, like, they're like huskies, you know. That's the thing. But. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Some cougs in the room. Yeah. <laughs> so if you were in a disaster situation and got to pick one celebrity to be in that situation with, who would it be? Other than us. <laughs> oh, this is really tough. <laughs> what would you pick, Danny? I mean, do I want to give him the number one best hint? <laughs> Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> Um, I guess Bruce Willis then. Along those same lines. You guys are like twins, kind of. (laughs) Except for I'd never hang out with middle schoolers. That's different. Assuming assuming there were terrorists involved. You and Bruce Bruce Willis Willis could kind of be like this ball dynamic duo that just like saves the city. Or uh, what's his name from. Ian, what did you say his name? Ian Ziering? The oh, 902 and a guy. Ian Ziering, yeah, because he was in Sharknado. Sharknado, he like, he killed it. He, he was very prepared. I like how Sharknado is your reference to a preparedness. Uh, <laughs> this is something we, this is why Matt decided to come here because he understands. Yeah, you weren't, you weren't on the preparedness kick early enough. Last year we did a thing at Central Cinema where we showed Sharknado yeah. and did a you whole do preparedness do thing around Redo. Sharknado. You do some fun no, events. Do redo. You do the Disaster we, Book Club too. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I just want to let you know that year before last in June, we also made a Sharknado float uh, <laughs> with our kickball league, oh, and see, it was that's amazing. Awesome. It was really good. You are my yeah. uh, Lex, who's your celebrity? Um, oh, I think I'd probably choose like Will Ferrell just so I could like really <laughs> your focus PMA. on my PMA. Your PMA would be. Yeah. I'm just glad you didn't say Anne Hash. We all learned from that. Serious question. Uh, how many places do you have personal survival packs stashed? In my house, yeah, in my house, in my car, and then we have things at work. So I hope you have some work. things at work. Um, <laughs> yeah, and honestly, I, I keep a lot of stuff in my car because my logic is that I mean, my car is always with me. If I'm home, then my car is outside. Um, so, yeah, I keep a lot of things in my car. Do you have anything in those that are stashed that's kind of a frivolity? Like it's just because you love it? 
I mean, there's there's beer. Yeah, there's beer in my there's, there's beer in my car, but that's not necessary. That's just because there's always beer in my car. It's not because like in the I'm not thinking ahead. I'm just thinking about now. Like, we don't uh, condone drinking and driving. I don't think that's what we're saying here. <laughs> well, if you're in Alabama, um, yeah. You anyway, can. do you want to ask? Um, what is your preferred water purification method? I mean the the bleach. So I mean the bleach really? is always the easiest thing. So there's <laughs> not surprised. Yeah, I mean I mean obviously I would boil. I mean the the first recommendation is always going to be to boil, but you always have bleach around. Um, so if you go to our skills workshop and we talk about like the sanitation piece and the buckets, then bleach also comes in handy there. So having bleach on hand, there's a lot of uses for that. And if you can purify a gallon of water with just a few you know drops of bleach, then. And you also Why could not? slowly poison your partner. Yeah. So, yeah. like, yeah. I mean, notice who's not at this podcast right now. <laughs> he, he created such a huge ruse that he had his entire work department go on a retreat just so he didn't have to be here. Out of today. all 700 people here, <laughs> Leaf couldn't <laughs> He was very busy. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, okay, would you rather... <laughs> <laughs> Would you rather have to get from a skyscraper rooftop to the bottom floor during an earthquake or hide in a stranger's crawl space for 48 hours with Gilbert Godfrey after <laughs> a nuclear disaster? I, I have some real nostalgic feelings about USA Up All Night and, oh and Gilbert Godfrey, so I think I can hang out with Gilbert Godfrey. I'd say the skyscraper just because modern building code is pretty great, so... Um, I think people are very concerned about the tall buildings that we have in Seattle, but they're built to some of the highest standards in the world. And so it, I could take a long time to get down if that's the only thing. It's just the walking we're worried about. Um, I would probably have to kill Gilbert Godfrey. <laughs> Things would go really crazy. The other, the other thing is just a leisurely walk down. We can just call him Fresh Meat. Um, but also, maybe Rhonda Shears could be there instead. We'll just say. Audience question? Sure. Did we have another? Does anyone in the audience? Because you mentioned that the buildings are built to the highest standard standing, but what happens when the ground underneath liquefies? The question is about liquefaction, liquefaction. Under yeah, skyscrapers. So I'm not the expert on this, but I will tell you that building code, so, you know, STCI in our building code is always to the international building code, so like highest standard, and then we have add-ons to that. And a lot of that has to do with um, specific requirements will have to do with soil type. So having to look at the soil type and then things that have to do with that. So like liquefaction, there are things that they can do in constructing a building, um, like driving down pilings and things like that before you start building. Um, so again, if it's a modern building and it's on liquefaction, then I feel pretty good. Our big concern in the city is unreinforced masonry buildings. So those buildings built 1945 and prior, brick buildings, a lot of those unfortunately are also in liquefaction areas. Um, so, so that would be my concern. I do not want to be in one of those. I will go anywhere with Gilbert Godfrey before I... <laughs> <laughs> um, what Seattle neighborhood, so within the Seattle area, uh, do you think has the best chances of surviving the big one? And by surviving, I mean, 
Everybody's crossing their I'm fingers. Pro- I'm probably not supposed to answer <laughs> this. So like when we, when, we, when we launched the Hazard Explorer, I think I did it. It was like KUOW or something. I did a, a radio interview. And Wait, they kept, you've done this before? And they kept trying to get me to say, like, what's the most dangerous place in the city? Notice, <laughs> notice I read PMA. I was like the best well, place. And there I kept making the point that... You know, it's less about like the underlying geology and more about what you've done beforehand. Um, so, Carl, if I if I, if I if I had to answer, I would say, and this is to try to give them a boost, is so a lot of times Capitol Hill gets a bad rap when people look at like our hub map or they look so like where are hubs established? None in Capitol Hill. And is that because say, there's no Why parking? does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's because you have more of like a transient population, a younger population, not people that like other neighborhoods who are like homeowners and are going to be there for a decade or two decades and they start knowing their neighbors. So some people would see that as kind of a weakness in terms of preparedness and a lot of people would talk junk about millennials but in having to deal with the public every day on this stuff I think younger people are less stressed out about this and are more likely to just deal with what comes and figure stuff out <laughs> so I would be more confident that yeah. that the population living there would just figure stuff out so what you're saying is that, bars there. that Capitol Hill has a lot of avocado toast like ready to go <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Ready to disperse. I think they'd they the be fine. They just keep going to the bar and just keep like. I, don't, yeah. I was talking to someone about that, and they go, "Yeah, as soon as start, stuff starts going south, I'm just going to start drinking beer." And I was yeah. like, "Yeah, okay." That seems have another audience question. They're coming in hot. Well, so if you were a millennial, hypothetically <laughs> speaking, who lived. In the kind of place where you're in an area that's all apartment buildings that are all for rent and there aren't those homeowners of people living yeah. there and you don't have that community, how do you advise, I don't know, starting that community or if something happens, launching some sort of community? I mean, it'd be yeah, I think, with people moving in and out, but. Yeah, I mean, I think our challenge is there's a lot of research and evidence to show that places that have more social cohesion, where they're actually kind of belonging to organizations, they know the people that live around them, that, they're, that they recover faster. So there's evidence to show that. I think we're a lot of times trying to get people to organize around preparedness, um, but that's not always going to work. So I feel like, honestly, any way <laughs> that you can start to know the people around you more, connect with them, is going to be beneficial in the end. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, let's get together and talk about what supplies we're going to have on hand. But it's going to be beneficial just to know them, period, and have some relationship beforehand. If you can start doing this stuff, then, then that's even better. She's making a face. You can't see it on the podcast. But I, I have a guy across the street from me. His name is Wilbur, and he yells at me across the street all the time. Uh, just, like, about things that are wrong with my roof. First week I moved in, I went down to the store. I had some bags. I got out of the car, and he yells over, So you do the shopping, huh? And that was it. No, he didn't. So, so, so yeah. I, can, I can, you know, relate to not... Uh, not planning with my neighbors. I think what Matt wants you to do is go join the Eagles, which will be great, because then we yeah, can go drink there. The Eagles Club. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, that's good. Um, we had another question. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the Seattle Emergency Management Department. 
department, the prepared build a kit thing on the website, and it suggests having a gallon of water per person per day in your emergency kit. For many of us who live in studios or micro studios and you can't figure out where to put all your normal shit, much less your emergency shit, how, like, when you look at everything on the list, is obviously water is the most important life. <laughs> Do yeah. you really need a gallon a day? We're talking two weeks preparedness. Do I need to find somewhere to store 14 gallons of water? Yeah, and this, and this is where I would say, so when we asked the question before and I said that we said survive and not thrive, we, we kind of go with... You know, we go with that gallon is including drinking, hygiene, if you had to use water for cooking. So it's a, it's a lot of things. <laughs> that would be best case scenario. You have a gallon per person for 10 days, two weeks. You can make if nice you have time. less than that, then yeah, you're probably going to be okay. But you just have to ration that. You know, I'm just using this for drinking and, you know, I'm planning on how I'm going to take care of other things or not take care of other things. Um, that's up to you. I talked to the person you're living with about that. <laughs> you're not going to wash yourself for two weeks. Um, also, uh, maybe you live in an apartment that has a pool because then you can just take all that water that's in there. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing, do you, know, do, you have a, do, you have a water, do you have a water heater? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, that's the other thing. Like, when we do our skills workshop, we kind of talk about turning off the power of the water heater, getting water out of that. Typical water heater is 30 to 60 gallons, so that's you just, water you, you just can amazed use. this person. Yeah. Like, she's like, I'm going to live. And there's a video on our website that shows how to get the water out of your water heater. There you go. That's amazing. Yay. <laughs> and then I do see a lot of people now buy these water cubes. They sell them on Amazon that basically, like, stack. So you see yeah. people, like, here's their toilet, and they have this space, like, this big between the toilet and the wall. That What else do you do with that? Well, they stack, like, you know, 20 gallons of water there. Um, yeah. It's a look. You know, like, you can put some lights in between them, and then when you go in in the evening. But there's a DIY site for how to make it look like, nice. Exactly. We want to make sure that's ready. Some decals on or something. <laughs> Change it out with the seasons. <laughs> that's what LEDs are about. You just set them to, like, nice. the mood, yeah. and then, you know, you feel it. Beautiful. Uh, so... I feel like, you know, we've held Matt captive. Hey, you wanted to talk about apps. Can you yeah, do it in like two minutes? Yeah, it's quite the transition. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, <laughs> well, he was like, that was, that was, that was real smooth. He did an entire class. Yeah, I just mentioned how I was teaching a class this morning about apps. So um, I guess I would just mention, you know, we talked about the water. When I think about the two most important things to me, it's water and having some way to keep my phone charged. Um, it's like we want to convince people that they shouldn't rely on their phone, but reality, people rely on their phone. So rather than try to get people to not rely on their phone, I just focus on being able to keep your phone charged. Um, I thought I wasn't allowed to talk about the app, so I didn't bring it back. Um, <laughs> not allowed. You know, I have one of these like power packs that has a solar panel on it, too, that's at least like a triple charge. can keep it charged for a long time, charge my phone multiple times. It's also a light that I can use. Um, when I was working in during Hurricane Sandy, when I was with the Red Cross, you know, we had a lot of people. You have people that come into shelters because they don't have a home. But in that situation, even more, you see people coming in just to charge their phone. Like Whoa. cell service was up. They just can't communicate with anyone because their phone's dead. And if you can keep your phone going, you're in so much better a situation. Um, and then there are apps that can be useful even if there's no cell service. So, you know, some mapping apps that you can actually have offline maps. I use like maps.me. So 
Recently was on vacation, out of the country, don't have any phone service, but can still, when I have Wi-Fi, download the maps. And then when I'm out in the street with no Wi-Fi, no internet, I can still get turn-by-turn directions and look up where things are in the city I'm in, stuff like that. Um, There's some communication ones. Um, Fire Chat, which seems to be having some problems lately. There's a new one. You guys should test this out. This should be your next episode. Zombie Chat. What? But basically, but basically <laughs> these apps use the hardware or? of your phone and like the Bluetooth capability to send messages to phones near you. So even if you don't have cell service or you don't have Wi-Fi, um, then basically you turn on Bluetooth capability, other people with the app you can send messages to, and then it can usually bounce off people that have the app. So like maybe you can send a message 200 feet if I'm trying to send it to you, but you're 400 feet away, but she's in between us. It can... That's so cool. Zombie chat? Zombie chat, yeah. So things like that. I mean, there's a lot you can do with your phone, even if you don't have cell service. Obviously, there's a lot you can do if you do have cell service, but it's just knowing that you have it charged, so. That's really cool. Yeah. Also, the whole mapping thing, one of the things we talked about in our comm episode was having maps kind of from where you are centrally located, like for work and how to get home. Because if you lose your primary route, like let's say all of the bridges disappear and you work downtown and you live in Ballard, like how are you going to get to Ballard if there's no bridges? <laughs> yeah, and that's the question. I, I think I get that question the most where people are like, you know, I go across 90 every day and if that's gone, uh, that's it, I'm stuck. And then I get to explain to them that Lake Washington is a lake and not an ocean. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's other bridges and you can go around. And it's knowing routes to walk. Like people also don't think about that. I think that people just get paralyzed. Um, You know, I was, my first year of college, I moved to New York City. My third week of college was 9-11 happened. And similar thing, I mean, I lived in Brooklyn. Um, Basically, it happened, they had us get off the subway. My school was in, at like 60th and 10th Avenue, and basically nothing was running. And and so, see someone I know, we, I mean, we walked home. Like, it takes a very long time, but it's like, you don't have a lot of options at that point. Like, what else are you going to do? And Seattle isn't geographically the biggest city, really. I mean, you can get to one end to the other. Um, yeah. It takes a while. It'll take a while. Yeah, like I said, you got nothing to do. So. <laughs> get one of those lime bikes. Get a lime bike and go for a little Yeah. Bit. There you go. I hope you've already downloaded the app because it'll yeah. be really hard to have that time period. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for coming and doing such a, you know, weird part of your day. We really appreciate it. It's actually like the least weird part of my day. That's amazing. (laughs) And thank you, everybody, for coming today. Like, We have a couple of things that are here that if you're listening to the podcast, you won't be able to do. Matt brought these so that Lex can stop stealing them from him. Yeah, which you can have as many as you want. He's not stealing. Yeah. Oh, can I make a plug? Yeah, I was going to say, plug anything you like. Lots of plug. I mean, our website, there's lots of things on our calendar, lots of classes. Um, But actually, the 21st... If anyone works downtown or uh, does not work at all and has lots of free time, um, from 11 a.m. to 3 on Thursday, September 21st, we will have the Big Shaker, which is an earthquake simulator at Occidental Park in Pioneer Square. So you can jump on in the trailer and feel what an 8.0 earthquake feels like. Maybe you could do a, do a, what if you did a podcast from inside the Big Shaker? Awesome. <laughs> We're going. 
Yeah. <laughs> I love it. And then, um, literally hot off the presses, uh, there's Prep Yourself Business Cards, which you can take some to, uh, and we're going to do a whole series of these, so when you come to other events, uh, you'll be able to get some other ones. For this particular one, it tells you how you can find the podcast, and then also, just some hints on nuclear disaster survival, uh, so... They're helpful. You know, it's not it's not like the end all. You should have more information than this. But, like, just in general, it might keep you alive for a few extra hours, uh, which is what we're hoping to do with this podcast in general. Awesome. And thanks for the Tices for the questions and Natalie and Whitney and all y'all. Thanks so much for coming. And thanks, Danny, for putting on an awesome event. But, and you too, Lex. I did nothing. She I got up. me socks that say badass. <laughs> <laughs> As a girl shooting a bow and arrow. Yeah. Do you want to sing us out? Ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-